Let's pray together as we prepare to open God's word together. Father in heaven, we praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for Easter, for the fact that the Son of God is risen indeed, conquering death, clearing the path for us to be resurrected one day. And if we're believers, to spend eternity on the new earth in our physical glorified bodies with you, Jesus. We can't wait. Today, Lord, as we open your word now, we pray your attendance, your blessing, your power. Uh, Help us, Lord, to hear your word and being hearers of it, also be doers of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In late 1944, during the final months of World War II, a young Japanese officer named Hiro Onada was ordered to go to the island of Lubang in the Philippines. And as it turned out, World War II ended less than nine months after that. The war was officially over, but Hiro Onada didn't believe that report that the war had ended. He thought it was fake news. And so, believing that the war was still on, Onada and three other Japanese soldiers hid out in the terrain of the island. They continued to carry out their intelligence duties that they had been doing, and sadly, over the years that followed, they killed many of the islanders. But eventually, one of those four soldiers ended up surrendering. Another two were killed, leaving Onada all by himself. Now get this, it wasn't until 1974, 29 years after the war had ended, that Onada finally became convinced that the war had in fact ended. And what it took to get him there was his commanding officer making a special trip to the island in 1974 to meet with him and officially relieve him of his duties. Onada's story is an amazing story, I think, of a person whose life was affected dramatically for many years because he did not believe that a past event had happened. And on this Easter Sunday, I want us just briefly to look together at a passage of Scripture that lays out the very dramatic ramifications if the past event of Christ's resurrection from the dead did not happen. If Christ has not, in fact, been raised from the dead, then our present existence and our future existence and even our past existence has been dramatically, all of those are dramatically affected. So come with me then. If you have a Bible open, we certainly encourage that in this church, but we'll have the verses on screen. Come with me to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the Christian church, the Corinthian church. 
And in verses four through eight of this 15th chapter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul has just talked in those verses about the central position that Christ's resurrection has in the gospel. Now here in verse 12, Paul says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, some folks in the Corinthian circles were very much like many people are today in 2022. People who will say something like this. Well, maybe, maybe your soul goes somewhere after you die, but your physical body just decays. Your physical body is not going to rise to life again. There is no resurrection of the dead. Dead bodies don't reanimate. There is no such thing as bodily resurrection. It goes against all we know from a scientific perspective. Some folks in the Corinthian circles were very much like many of our contemporaries. They were very much like those to whom Paul had preached in Athens, who mocked, is the word in scripture, mocked when he began preaching the bodily resurrection of the dead, Acts 17, verse 32. The Corinthians just could not get on board with the possibility of bodily resurrection. It was out of bounds because it did not fit with their settled intellectual arrangements. So verse 12 of our passage then gives us the problem in Corinth. There was this denial from some, a denial that dead people could resurrect to life. And now Paul will say, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he's writing to the Corinthian church, Paul will say, in effect, all right, for the sake of argument, let's grant that there is no resurrection from the dead. What would be the consequences or the results of such a denial? Verse 13, he begins. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, let's grant that. If there's no general raising of dead physical bodies in the power of Almighty God, then, says Paul, not even Christ has been raised. You see, Corinthians, you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you rule out any resurrection of a dead physical body, then you have to rule out the resurrection of the specific person of Christ. You have to deny that monumental, world-altering, past event of Christ being raised from the dead physically and bodily. 
You have to contend under your position, Corinthians, that Jesus is still in the tomb. That he never did get up and walk out and such a denial of Christ's resurrection changes everything. Verse 14, for the sake of argument, Paul continues, if Christ has not been raised, then our kerygma in Greek, our message, our, our whole message, our preaching as apostles is in vain, is in vain. It is an empty message. It is a void message. It is a message to no avail if Christ has not in fact been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, he says, your faith, think of it, your faith is also in vain. Your very faith is empty. Your very faith is to no avail if Christ has not been raised. My Christian friends, there are gigantic consequences, aren't there, if Christ has not been raised? And I hope we can see here the central cruciality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to our faith. And remember, the Apostle Paul and the other apostles, we have to remember this, they were eyewitnesses, weren't they, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ eyewitnesses, they had seen him risen from the dead. And we notice especially, if we read the book of Acts, that throughout the book of Acts, the resurrection was the thing that burned in their hearts as they went everywhere preaching. Christ is risen indeed. They went everywhere proclaiming it, they had seen the risen Christ and they had been with the risen Christ. And as the old Scottish minister, James Stewart, not the movie actor, but the theologian, as James Stewart once put it, quote, the resurrection for the apostles was the master motive of every act of Christian evangelism. And not one line of the New Testament was written apart from the conviction that Jesus had conquered death, yes it's true, and was alive forever. Paul says very forcefully here that if the bodily resurrection of Jesus is a sham, then the very gospel that he and the others had been preaching was a sham which in turn meant that any faith, listen, any faith that was produced by that sham gospel was a sham faith. It was all useless nonsense if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen. Because think of it, for one thing, speaking of faith, how in the world could it be possible for uh, uh, any person to have an intimate, living, day-to-day -day fellowship and communion with a dead Jesus? With a Jesus who was still lying motionless in the tomb. Such faith would be futile. It would be a sham. 
Paul continues in verse 15 with his for the sake of argument track that he's been on. He says this now, we, he goes further, we apostles, we are even found to be what? Misrepresenting God. Telling lies about God. Being heretics. Why? Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. The idea here is that if the fact of Christ's resurrection has no truth about it, then the apostles testifying that God performed that resurrection, that's a false testimony. The apostles are guilty then of lying about God, if that is the case. And then we get verse 16, where Paul essentially repeats what he had already said at verse 13, and why does he repeat this here? He repeats it to drive home the consequences of the Corinthians' flawed conclusion. He says, again in verse 15, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And then in verse 17, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, futile, of no effect, nonsense, empty, is futile. He's repeating what he'd said in verse 14 when he said that their faith would be in vain. If Christ is not raised, your faith is useless, powerless, a waste of time. And he says, listen to this carefully. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. Now notice this. Saints of God. The resurrection of the Son of God, listen, is instrumental It is absolutely essential if we would be released from the condemnation of our sins. Are you with me today? If Christ has not been raised, you, my friend, are still in your sins. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Paul says that Christ, listen, Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Raised for our justification. Jesus was bodily raised that we sinners before God could then be released from our penalty, declared righteous, acquitted of the sin that Jesus paid for on his cross and given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Raised for our justification. Again, can we see how massively important and how world-altering God has come along and he's flipped this world upside down. And boy, does it need flipping upside down. Amen? He's flipped this world upside down. This is what Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead has done that happened in Israel 
on, is, on Israeli soil 2,000 years ago, where would we be without the resurrection? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not simply some sort of personal resuscitation of Jesus that only affects him. No, the resurrection of Jesus is an event that has happened in history with massive, stupendous consequences. And Paul continues his for the sake of argument track then in verse 18. He says, if Christ has not been raised, let's grant that, if Christ has not been raised, then still another logical consequence is this, that those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that is, people like Genevieve Simons, who we buried last Wednesday, who died in Christ, who was buried believing in Jesus, people like her have perished if Christ has not been raised. There is absolutely no future for those who died believing if Christ has not been raised. There is no eternal life to be spent. Oh, and I hope you're excited about this. There is no eternal life to be, we will spend eternal life in a, if we believe and trust in Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his work on the cross, we will be raised one day out of our graves, physically in glorified bodies to spend eternity with Jesus Christ on the new earth. No more crying, no more dying, no more sin, no more death. But you can take all of that and throw it in the nearest waste paper basket if Christ has not been raised. Friends, if Jesus was not rescued after physical death, God raising him from the dead, then none of us will be rescued after our physical death. How utterly hopeless and frightening if Christ has not been raised. I pray and hope that you can see, my friend, the personal ramifications for you if Christ has not been raised. And if you are not trusting him as your Savior and Lord. And then we get verse 19, where Paul says, if in Christ we have hope, in this life only. If in Christ we have hope only from the time of our being born again, regenerated by the Spirit of God, up to the time when we close our eyes in death. If it's only for that little brief span of time, 20 years, 30 years, 60 years, 90 years, that little brief span of time that we have hope in Christ's final defeat of death, that we have hope in a, a victorious eternal life on a new earth with the risen Jesus, if it's only for those few short years in this lifetime that we have such hope, only for that little teensy blip on the scale of eternity, Then, says Paul, 
We are of all people most to be pitied. Or as Leon Morris suggests for a translation here, we are the most pitiable people. The most pitiable people. Why pitiable? Well, we have to understand that Paul here, being the Apostle Paul, he is speaking here to the Corinthians out of a deep understanding of the Christian life. The Christian life for Paul meant much suffering. Out of Paul's love to Christ, (laughs) and oh how he loved Christ, he met him on the road, risen, and was blinded. Oh how he loved Christ. Out of his love for Christ and for his service to Christ, Paul had, to quote him, suffered the loss of all things, Philippians 3.8. Because of Paul's love to Christ and his heart's desire to follow Christ and because Paul was not above his master and he knew that, Paul had been in danger every hour, in danger every hour. Same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 30. Paul had been imprisoned and he had been beaten. In 2 Corinthians 11.24 and following, Paul catalogs there the suffering that he encountered for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the spreading of the gospel. He talks there about receiving 40 lashes minus one for the sake of Christ and his love for Christ and for the gospel. 40 lashes minus one of being shipwrecked of being in a variety of dangers, he says at different times, of having sleepless nights and being hungry and thirsty. My friend, the question here is, why would anybody choose to live that way if his or her hope was contained only within this brief life? Why would anybody do it? If there is no eternal fellowship in a risen body with the risen Jesus Christ on a new earth, if Christ has not been raised, then I ask you why in the world would anybody bother with a life of suffering for Christ like Paul did? It would indeed be a most pitiable existence if Christ has not been raised. As C.K. Barrett once put the matter, he said this, if Christ was not raised, Christians would be bearing about in their body the dying of Jesus, as we are called to do, without any prospect that his life also might be manifested in them. My friends, Paul has invited the Corinthian church, he has invited us, Snowden Baptist Church, to see and to grapple with the inevitable if Christ has not been raised. He's invited us to see the very alarming consequences, and they are alarming if that were true, that Christ has not been raised. To recap just very briefly, if the dead are not raised, then there is no risen Christ, and there is no basis for preaching. I may as well pack it up and do something else with my life. There is no basis for faith, it's all nonsense. 
if Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then anybody who comes along and testifies that Christ is risen is lying about God. And horrifically, if Christ is not raised, then we are all still in our sins. We are all still under a holy God's condemnation. And that's an unbearable weight. And if Christ is not raised, then not one of us, not one of us, has any blessed future whatsoever after we die. In fact, of all people, we Christians who are called to a life of suffering for his sake are the most pitiable if Christ has not been raised. So Paul paints a bleak, I know it's Easter Sunday and we're getting there. Paul paints a bleak, almost anxious picture. All to do what? To lead us to verse 20. Which gives us blessed Easter words. Amen. A blessed Easter assertion. Blessed Easter truth. In verse 20, what happens? The lights go up. And they shine brilliantly. Listen to this. If the dead... Oh, that's my... uh, See? The drama. You just can't wait for the next slide. There it is. (laughs) How to kill drama in five easy steps by Pastor Brent. Verse 20. But... Read it with me. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? He is risen. This happened in history, brothers and sisters and friends. God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death, for it was not possible for him to be held by it. Acts chapter 2, verse 24, he is risen, my friends, the tomb is is empty. Now the verb in this verse, that word raised, is in the perfect tense in Greek. And the Greek perfect tense has no real counterpart in English. Uh, The Greek perfect tense indicates an action that was completed and has present day consequences. That was completed and has present day consequences. Or as William Mounts describes it in his Greek grammar, perfect tense is a completed action whose effects are felt in the present. Whose effects are felt in the present. The raising of Jesus Christ is a completed action that has ongoing consequences, ongoing effects. And with that in mind, notice where Paul goes next in this verse. He says, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits, listen, the first fruits, the first fruits, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the first fruits. There is a connection between Christ's resurrection in the past, listen, 2,000 years ago, and the harvest of resurrections that is yet to come. 
Christ's resurrection carries with it ongoing, powerful, massive, stupendous effects. Amen? Now, in the Okanagan Valley in BC, where my wife April grew up, you can start picking ripe, delicious peaches in late July. And those first peaches that are picked in late July are called the first fruits. An orchard keeper picks the very first peach off his tree. Maybe he inspects it, maybe he tastes it because he can't resist. And then he knows what sort of wider harvest he can look forward to. <laughs> first fruits. When we speak of first fruits, listen, there is a time element involved, okay? Time element. They are the first fruits to be picked in the temporal sequence of the entire harvest first fruits, time, and there is also a quality element involved. By judging the quality of the initial pickings, you can judge the quality of the wider harvest. Time, quality. Jesus is the first resurrection in time, a resurrection to an incorruptible, everlasting physical body, Yes, he resuscitated people in the Gospels, but not to everlasting, physical, glorified bodies. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first in time this way. He is the first fruits in that way. His resurrection, to quote Robert Ledham, has temporal priority, temporal priority. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is also first fruits in terms of quality, namely, his resurrection from the dead bears the same quality that the wider harvest of resurrections will have, amen? The resurrection of our bodies as believers in him to incorruptible, everlasting, physical life. We are not destined to be spirits floating around in the clouds like the old Philadelphia cream cheese commercials. The first peach is of the same quality as the other peaches that are picked later. Yes? The first luscious peach guarantees the wider harvest of luscious peaches. His resurrection guarantees that our resurrection to life as believers will be of the same blessed, astounding, everlasting character. One day we're going to find ourselves suddenly waking up and powering through the mud and the roots above us six feet until we get to the new earth that has been renovated and remade in the power of God. Do you believe it this morning? On this Easter morning, friends, we praise God in heaven for the resurrection of his son. The resurrection which justifies which guarantees our future when our bodies in their graves will have that great waking up morning. We thank God for the resurrection of Jesus, which is the first fruits that guarantees the wider resurrection harvest. We thank him because of the resurrection. Our faith, because of the resurrection, our faith is not in vain. It's not in vain. Preaching the resurrection is far from futile. It is the truth. 
We praise God today that because of Christ's resurrection, you and I as believers are not destined to perish, but to have everlasting life in our raised, glorified bodies. We are not the most pitiable people after all. We are people destined for a real eternity with the risen King. And now I exhort you, church, to go out and to make it known to a sin-sick world, a world reeling from a pandemic, from war, from violence of all kinds. Tell your neighbor that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. As John Webster said, and then I'm done, the church is called to point to the resurrection as the most real and true and glad thing that there is. The church's task is to say, here he is. <laughs> here is Jesus Christ unfathomably and insuppressibly alive. I challenge you to point to the risen Christ in your corner of the world this week. Amen. Let's pray together. Our God, how can we say enough thanks that the tomb is empty? That our Lord Jesus Christ is risen from the dead? That he pleaded with Thomas, touch me, see that I am real. Father, we praise you and we thank you and we adore you for your plan of salvation that you have unfolded that includes the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of our bodies as believers. And I pray, Lord, for the church as we go out this week after Easter Sunday and Monday, Lord, to proclaim that you would give us strength and give us boldness and courage to proclaim Jesus Christ and share him with people who are hurting, who live around us. Walk with us, go with us, empower us. I pray, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.